Hello and welcome to Between the Mountains Adventure Podcast, the Road to Denali series, which follows me as a beginner through to the summit of Denali, bringing you value along the way. interview with Luke Mel who is an incredibly accomplished gentleman from Alaska. I'll dive into a bit more about what he's done shortly. Before we get into that I just wanted to cover briefly two aspects. The first one being money and the second one just being some challenges. So let's talk about money first. I had an accredited guide offered to help me with a crevasse episode because like I say, I'm trying to get these episodes together and provide some value to you, a tops, tricks, advice from experts in the field. He had a look at my uh, at my webpage and uh, you know, two things became apparent. One, he's not very good at spelling or grammar and the second one was that opinions are like assholes. Everyone's got one. So. After the, some of the things he said, and I, I tried to reason here with him, but it was a very quick five minutes in the past. I just wanted to go over the whole money thing here. I've changed a small link in the description, so you can now make a 100% charitable donation as a listener to Mind Over Mountains Charity. You can go do that with that link, and know that you are using their link, not mine. Everything is going towards them, and if you can, you can even do gift aid if you're in the UK. The second bit is that I'm wanting to work with brands that can provide value to us. And through their advertising revenue, I'm going to be funding the expedition and the training. And I'm also going to be taking 10% of that and shoving that towards Mind Over Mountains because the mountains are, generally speaking, a selfish pursuit. There's no real reason to go up there most of the time. So I just wanted to do a little bit to give back. And of course, I'll be self-funding it. I'll be doing as much as I can and you know for instance with a Mount Kazbek trip and an untitled on the website Mount Triglav trip I funded that myself and I will continue to go ahead and do that but just wanted to make it clear uh, that situation given the odd concerns and reasoning he gave but there you go that's the first one but I suppose in many ways as we approach a year of this podcast that's the first bit of hate I've received so I guess you can say we're growing right but um if you also want to insult me, you can go to btmtravelpod at gmail.com or follow the Instagram, Twitter, Facebook links in the show notes. The other bit I wanted to talk about was the, the challenges coming up. You know, I, I quite boldly said, May 2023, I'll be wanting to uh, climb tonight. And... Let me just be clear on that. If I'm not ready, if I'm not prepared, if I've not done the training, if I don't have the money, if the flipping Lord forbid that the coronavirus is still affecting us, then I won't be going out. I'll be I'll be the first one to change the date. You know, even just chatting to Luke outside of recording, I said I wanted to do May 2023 because it's my 30th birthday. 
and he said, well, actually, June seems to be the safest option and the best success rate. So already I'm thinking about changing to June 2023, but that's something to look into. So just to fully aware, I quite boldly said I'm going to, but I will be the first one to assess and change things should I need to. But with no further ado, let's get into this interview with Luke Mel. Luke Mel is an incredibly accomplished guy over in Alaska. He's done multiple Alaskan wilderness classics, which are quite hard and arduous tasks over in Alaska. He's done the three, well, he's done three huge traverses of the three highest mountains in North America too, which you can go to his website and check out. Or the Denali one is in the, the blog accompanying this episode. So you can go check that out too. He's an incredibly accomplished guy, born and bred Alaska. It's, uh, it's his hood as he refers to. So check out this interview. He's going to ch- talk to us about all the things you need to do to prepare for Denali specifically, but Alaska in general. And I'd love to hear what you think of his opinion. You know, uh, going into it, he's very open, very fair in what he says, I think, and very insightful in what he says. So I'll be keen to hear what you all think. btmtravelpod at gmail.com or, again, those social uh, links to either compliment the show or insult me. Either way, totally fine. But otherwise, I hope you enjoy it. Let's get into it. So, Luke, welcome back to the podcast. And I say welcome back because we've got an interview with you coming out very soon. But in the interim, you've come back to help um, chat a bit about Denali and Alaska. But um, thank you so much for coming back to the podcast. How are you doing today? I'm doing well. Yeah, thanks. I'm excited to talk about Denali. Yeah, it should be fun. Yeah, and uh, and the wider Alaska range because it is such a... It's crept on me. I had, I used to have a placemat as a kid that was laminated. It was, it was what I used for breakfast. And I always used to see Alaska in the top left corner of the US. And as I've grown older and older, I've, I've discovered more and more just how gorgeous that place at least appears to be. So, so yeah, looking forward to getting there. You are, and, and people will hear this in, in the main interview, you are really quite an expert on all things Alaska wilderness. And you've done an incredible traverse of Denali. And I think that's a great place to kick off, really. So did you want to chat to us briefly about your experience of Denali in, in a fairly unique way? Yeah, sure. Um, yeah, so I grew up in Alaska and then, of course, drawn to the mountains just from being surrounded by them. And when some friends started planning this trip to Denali, um, we were all fit. We were like the, in the best shape, you know, we're going to be. It's probably I was right around 30 years old and we didn't have any extra money and so we were trying to figure out how to go to denali as cheaply as possible and we were confident that we were strong enough to do something creative so the plan kind of evolved but it ended up being a couple days biking in on the road so there's a a park road a national park service road that brings you to wonder lake that's as far as you can drive (coughs) drive in as close as you can get to uh, denali and we checked in with friends that were working at the park and saying like, is the, is the road plowed? You know, what can we expect on that road? And, and we got, got reports back and, and figured out the logistics and, and biked in as far as we could bike. And then when the road, when we got to where the plows had reached, we stacked our bikes in the snow there on the side of the road and switched over to skis. And then later in the summer, friends of friends picked up our bikes and brought them back out to the end of the road. So it was like all these like moving parts, but but super fun, super creative and very social. We had at least 10 people, 10 friends helping us bike in. I borrowed bike trailers, I borrowed bikes, you know, everything I could to, to get these friends to go in with us and have a couple 
uh, fun social evenings before we were going to start climbing. So we switched to skis. We went up the Maldro route, which is on the north side of Denali, and then had a pretty uneventful climb to the summit and were psyched, felt really fortunate to get up there and then skied down the West Buttress, so the, the standard route that, um, that gets the most traffic. And at the bottom of the West Buttress, we picked up our pack rafts, these little inflatable boats um, that another friend had buried in the snow. So they were buried there and had a wand with our names on it, like, here's your pack rafts. And then from there, we floated, we skied out a little bit with the pack rafts in our packs and then eventually floated out the river system to the town of Talkeetna. So we were able to do the whole mountain road to road. And one of the cool things for me is that the elevation of Talkeetna is about 300 feet and the elevation of Denali is, what is it, 20,300? So it's like, we, we got to do the full 20,000 vert. And so that felt pretty cool. It's like, how many places can you, can you under your own power, can you um, travel a whole, a full 20,000 feet? So that was our trip and it was cheap, like as planned, and it was hard physically. Uh, it would be, it's kind of intimidating to imagine doing that now. I think I could still do it now, but it was, it was nice to be young and fit at that, at that time, younger and fitter at that time. Yeah, absolutely. And, and it really was an incredible traverse. Reading about it for the research on the, on the main interview was a complete pleasure. And same with the other uh, two peaks that you did, which um, which I recommend people go and listen when when the episode is released, because yeah, that was quite quite a nice little achievement there. The, the three highest mountains in North America doing a a, a, a traverse uh, and a, and a loop as well, right? Because because you, you you're not an out and out and back guy, so a loop. Not, yeah, not if I not if I can avoid it. Let's get a bit more into um, into Denali. So sort of uh, uh, like like you were saying before we hit record, the the wider picture. So. The West Buttress is the route that I'm aiming to take in two years' time. By all means, the date will be pushed back if I'm not fit enough, I'm not ready enough, but certainly two years' time, put it in the diary. <laughs> um, that's the West Buttress. You did it on the way down. What are some of the key things that we're going to be seeing on the, on, on the way, at least the way down with the West Buttress? Yeah, so the uh, I'll tell you one. So growing up here, you know, Denali has a huge reputation and, and just like right out of high school, some of my friends were climbing it. Like, And what I often heard is that it was a zoo it was crowded uh and and that means something different in alaska where nothing is really that crowded like our rush hour is not very bad for rush hour but for living in an area where it's so easy to go and have space um and and avoid people if that's what you're trying to do the prospect of being on the west buttress with a bunch of climbers never appealed to me and so I kind of wrote it off. I thought, this is, this is just not something I'm interested in. And, and that's part of why I was excited to go up that, that Maldor route to the north, because it gets way less traffic. And we didn't see anybody on that side. But the reason I'm telling you all this is that when we did start descending down the West Buttress, I was just overwhelmed with how cool it was, like what a good route it was. So regardless of the fact that there's people, and honestly, at that point, after we'd just been the four of us for a couple of weeks, um, and stuck in a tent in a storm for a week, you know, I was actually like, yeah, people, this is kind of nice. We have some conversations, trade some food, but it was stunning. Like, it's a great route. It's a classic route. And, uh, it was a good learning lesson for me to, to go there and be like, whoa, like, why was I critical of this thing that I, you know, I didn't have any experience of it, any firsthand experience coming out of it. I was like, West Buttress is awesome and everybody that wants to should definitely go there and try to climb it. Like 
it's sweet. And and there's it's kind of described a little bit like um you know like a rock climb or like uh, running a rapids. You know, there's different there's different sections that each have names and they each have their own feel. And and since I've only experienced it once on the way down, I don't have a great memory for that. You know, for the Audubon and for Motorcycle Hill and all that. You probably are more familiar with those terms than I am. But what I what I do remember for us was that there was there was really only one part that felt steep in a way that that could be uh, scary, and that was the the fixed lines that are just above the fourteen thousand camp, and they're fixed lines. They're maintained by Park Service by the Rangers, so it's it is a, a pretty special opportunity to go into terrain like that, reach an elevation like that. And, and be able to do it pretty safely, like, especially if you are going with the guides or with um, real experienced partners or people that have been up there before. So it's a treat. It's a real treasure, I think, um, for, for people that are seeking that outdoor experience and, and a sense of accomplishment that maybe comes after doing some hard work and, and having a little bit of discomfort while you're out there. Those are part of the, part of the game for sure. And with those fixed line sections as well, you said it was pretty pretty scary. Was that just uh, the, just how steep they were? Nothing, nothing too mental, just a, enough to get the adrenaline going, or was it really quite quite something different? No, um, and and it, you know, with the caveat that I've I've done a, a bit of climbing and comfortable with Alaska and all that, it wasn't it wasn't scary. Um, and the the placement of the ropes, the hardware, like that's all. It's all pretty bomber and pretty straightforward to use. So uh, that's just the part that's like, that's the part that needs fixed lines, right? Everything else you can kind of get by on your own. Um, and that one after there were a bunch of falls and accidents on that, the, the ranger started maintaining those lines. So it's steep. It's steep enough that if you fell and you weren't on that line, that'd be, that'd be a serious problem. But with uh, with practice and training and, and the right equipment, if you fell, you should that should arrest your fall it would not be as big an issue. Yeah, for sure. I think we're talking about this a little bit before. What would you say is the most important factor to, to knuckle down on before approaching Denali or I suppose any of the tall mountains in Alaska? Gosh, it's hard to, to come up with, with one factor. I mean, the, the loudest voice in my head is saying, work up to it, right? Like try on, a uh, 16,000 foot peak and try on a 12,000 foot and try on an 8,000 foot, you know, before that, like working your way up and, and just dialing in your kit. When you are exposed in a setting like that, like not only are you at elevation and it's cold, you're quite far from the road and, uh, and, and help. And if you get to 17 camp and it's blowing, you, you might not be, uh, a candidate for helicopter rescue, you know, a tiny thing in those conditions can be a big deal. And so if you go into that already knowing how to fix your stove, how to take care of your blisters, how to keep your feet warm, that's huge. So that's what you're getting here too, building up to it. But I can also be more specific. On the West Buttress, in Denali, in Alaska in general, you're, you're always going to be dealing with cold. And so that's one of your that's one of your hazards that you can't control. Like it is going to be cold. And so having figured out your layering systems, like having figured out how not to sweat and get your under layers too wet, um, having figured out what liners you need in your boots 
to keep your feet warm. You know, like a sloppy boot is going to be a lot warmer than a tight fitting boot. A tight fitting boot is a little more high performance. It gives you a little more control over your placement, your crampons, whatever. So there's these little trade-offs that you have to figure out. I've got hot hands. My hands never get cold, but my feet get cold. And I, and I know that from, from trying at 12,000, trying at 8,000, you know, like building up to this. But that's one of the big ones is just managing the cold. And then in addition to that, um, crevasses. You'll be traveling over crevasses. And that's a little bit safer if you're on skis because they span the width, you know, distribute your weight a little bit better. I assume you'll be on snowshoes. I, I believe that's what most of the companies are, are doing, yeah. Yeah, most guided trips go up on snowshoes. Um, and so those also help distribute your weight. But, but that's one concern is crevasses. And of course, that's a great reason to go with a guide is that the guides should know where those cracks are and definitely know how to set up crevasse rescue. Um, and honestly, that's part of the fun, like roping up and, and knowing how to tie a butterfly and clipping in, like, I should say that's part of the fun if you enjoy learning. Um, there, you can learn a lot and that's, and I really, I really like that part because it's like, wow, this is enabling me to walk over this glacier. This is badass, super cool. And then um, a couple of these steep sections we mentioned, like those fixed lines. So yeah, those are dangerous if you if you're tired and your cold fingers don't um, don't allow you to to tie in properly, um, that could be dangerous. And that's another great reason to have a guide looking over your shoulder and, and double checking your knots. And then altitude, like you get dumb and you get slow, and it's a bad combination. Um, I felt like crap, like just real weak and and it takes away some of the fun you know to be up high and and not really be able to enjoy it other people feel fine it's a very personal experience even the same person going back to the same peak will feel different year to year uh, it's a real strange phenomenon um, but those are all those are all some some uh some hazards that i think every climber is, is going to manage out there and and they're all things that you you can't control like you can't control the steepness you can't control the wind um, but what you can control is your preparation your clothing who you're with um, and that's kind of that's how we can we can manage some of those hazards yeah absolutely and then moving as well which is i suppose a little bit about risk assessment a little bit of on its own topic in itself but training i think I don't, I don't know about you. I think maybe the best place to start talking about training is your anecdote at MIT when you were there. Oh yeah, uh, yeah. So I spent, I did a, a grad program at MIT in Boston, and there was an outdoor club, and so I, I didn't have much free time as a as a student. But I, of course, I was like curious what the outdoor clubs do, and I went on a climbing trip with them. There was amazing rock climbing right there, right out of Boston, which kind of blew my mind. Like much better than anything I'd done here in Alaska. Um, that's not the point. The point is, <laughs> these guys are huge fans of Alaska, and I'm like, oh, sweet, me too. You know, that's that's my hood. And uh, some of these guys were training for Denali, either formally or that's just what they were saying is kind of like, hey, this is our Denali club, um, and they were doing that by climbing the stairs in the tallest building. And, and I was in the tallest building that was the uh, Earth and Atmospheric Planetary Sciences. And so I'd see these guys with a loaded backpack, you know, probably loaded with their textbooks, climbing these stairs. And it's this like old square cement building, like not visually appealing, like just no joy to this activity whatsoever. And these guys are just crushing it up, down, up, down. 
and I just felt sorry for him, honestly, because the way that I train for Denali is is kind of a lifestyle, and it's I have the privilege of being able to live that lifestyle here in Anchorage. But it's like you ski every weekend uh, until there's no snow, and then you bike, and then you boat, and then it's like every weekend year round you play outside, and that's really how how I trained for my mountain time. So no, I'm not. I, I don't I'm trying not to be mean to those guys or discredit them or anything but it just it just it just made me grateful for my own experiences and so for you um, looking to climb uh, something like Denali or do something else that's ambitious uh, you know anything really I think that 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 lifestyle training is really valuable it's like if you can play soccer, play soccer, like do push-ups, like all that stuff, <laughs> all that stuff works to your benefit. There are some, some specific training programs. I think there are some that are even directed specifically for Denali. There's a, there's a, a site, a group, the Smiley Project, I think I can, I can send you a link later. Maybe you've run into it. He's got a, he's another of these um, international guys and he's got a program specifically for Denali. And my wife has a, online business fitness program that's like this as well that's it's targeted at women it's, but it's what I do it's amazing because it's like core strength and upper body and and all of the little muscles like the muscles that do your balance work um which is which is so important for everything we do outside where it's like your foot slips uh out from under you or you catch a fall or something like that's all these little like tendons and muscles that that maybe don't get targeted in the gym Anyway, so there's fitness programs like that, like specifically to get strong, to climb mountains. Um, and those are great. And so what I've done is kind of a mix of that, like that gym time, that dedicated training, and then just being outside as much as possible and, and taking the opportunity to push myself whenever it was appropriate to do that. Like if I had a little bit of a, a safety net below me. Yeah, absolutely. And I think you as well said that, uh, fewer fewer steps in the building more time spent winter camping would it would have helped those guys a bit more when i think about denali and you know, people ask me like how do i prepare for denali i am pretty inclined to say that the most important thing is to get comfortable winter camping it's just it's just that's just never that much fun you know it's never that much fun to have to melt snow for water and uh and, and fix a stove and, and hide in your sleeping bag because it's cold out and tie your tent down because it's so windy but the more comfortable you are at at camping and taking care of yourself that becomes really important if anything goes wrong you know if, if one of your partners is sick or has blisters or has frostbite it's like if you know how to set them up in a in a safe spot in the tent that counts for a lot that goes a long way and you'll spend more time camping than hiking or climbing for your time on the mountain like that's just part of the game like it, it's too hard for, for most of us to, to try to move 12 hours a day in those conditions. So more likely you're going to move four hours or six hours. And with, with altitude, you know, you can't move or you shouldn't move too quickly, too high. And so that kind of limits your, your time actually moving as well. So a lot of your time is spent in the tent recovering and, and winter camping is it's something you get better at You kind of learn the tricks you know, how thin of a glove can I get away with that'll let me light the stove, but not force me to take that glove off and, and get, put my hand on the metal, stuff like that. You learn that just through, through time and experience. 
And I think, yeah, that in the research for the main interview, and we chatted about this quote just before we hit record as well, uh, which is where you said it was interesting to, about the Denali Traverse, you said it was interesting to reflect. Uh, there was a lot of time for a reflection on how good we were at moving fast, but how bad we were at waiting. So, yeah, I think a lot of patience is needed for Denali, if, if I'm not mistaken. Yeah, I think, and, and again, you probably know more about this than I do. I think the guided companies generally plan for three weeks on the mountain and one of those weeks is expected to be stuck in a tent in a storm. Yeah. <laughs> and and that's ex that's exactly what our experience was. Like we we flew up the side and we got to 14,000 feet and then we got hit by a storm. And then there was a tiny gap in the storm and we bumped to 16 because we thought, let's just go as high as we can. And then we were pinned at 16 for six days or something, seven days. And we were, you're worse off sleeping, even that difference between 14 and 16, like our bodies were kind of breaking down because of that extra um, altitude. So we're laying flat, we're pinned and, you know, you read what you can read and then you read it again. And then you, <laughs> you just kind of run out of things to do and you sleep. And so that's part of the game for sure is to, to be prepared and to take care of yourself during that whole time. And then after a whole week of lying flat, we get up to go climb the summit. And we were, at least I was weak. Like I, I lost a bunch of that fitness that I'd gained in the week leading up to uh, that point. So then, so that was a bummer, but that's, that's, that's really typical. A lot of people get stuck 17 camp uh, or 16 where we were on the North side. Chatting more about logistics now. So uh, let's talk Denali first. So getting to Denali, what are the logistics involved in getting there? Yeah, for you uh, coming abroad or from people coming up from the lower 48 states, first it's that flight to Anchorage, and then uh, it's getting to Talkeetna. And I think some people might take a train up there. That's an option. There's there's kind of a, a tourist um, train, and it's, it's pretty. It's cool. Um, some of the guide companies, I think, will have shuttles that'll run you up to Talkeetna. Some people will rent a car to get up to Talkeetna. And I think you can, but there isn't like a regular bus. Like Alaska is way behind on the public transit movement. <laughs> like it's, it's sad. Um, so, so it will take a little bit of work to figure out how to get to Talkeetna. Um, but absolutely, a guide company knows the best way to do that. And, and very likely they're running that shuttle because they've got clients that need to fly out. Um, so you get to Talkeetna. Talkeetna is a small, boy, in the winter, it's a sleepy little town with a bunch of boarded up shops, you know, a couple bars. Uh, and then in the summer, it's kind of bustling with tourism. And from Talkeetna, you'll get on a small plane, like a, maybe a six passenger plane. There's probably some that are bigger than that, but there's just like a noisy prop plane. A lot of people will choose to wear head uh, earplugs, ear you know, to kind of block out some of the noise. I'd probably guess it's about a 40 minute flight to get to the, um, the landing zone. And the landing zone is right on the border. Like the Denali's in a wilderness area, like federally protected wilderness with a capital W. And this, this airstrip is right across that border. So it's like as close as you can be to the mountain uh, and legally land. And it's a real well-maintained strip. And there's a lot of infrastructure there. There's somebody that's managing people coming in and out and dealing with all the gear and, and getting people setting people up to, to put caches in the snow so that they have their gear when they come back down. So then you're at base camp. And, and from there, that's where your, your climb will start. But it, it takes several legs to get that far. So 
what if we wanted to go more north let's say we want to go to the the the, the brooks range how would we go about getting there yeah so the the common challenge accessing anywhere in alaska is that there there are a few roads um but not many and as soon as you want to get off the road you have limited options um and i kind of i would rate my options in terms of affordability and the the most affordable option is to spend a couple of weeks just walking off the road and maybe back onto the road um and that's that's great that's super rewarding you can see a lot of really cool stuff um as 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 cheaply as possible but you're still limited to you know basically which side of the road are you going to go on and then beyond that your next option is to take a commercial flight so a scheduled flight into a village and you're talking about the brooks range well there's maybe five villages that you can that you could fly into commercially and and that would probably be from fairbanks or from Kotzebue, from one of these bigger hubs um and and that's, I guess, you know, affordable depending on what you consider affordable. Um, and if you need something more remote than that, then you're talking about chartering a flight and that gets expensive quickly. Uh, you get charged by the hour and it will depend on what size plane you're in. So if it's just you, you can get in a small plane. And that can be pretty cheap, except for that the small plane doesn't move as fast. So it might take more time to reach your destination. Or you can get in the six passenger plane, six passenger plane and split the cost between six of you. And um, that's a more expensive plane, but maybe it'll move faster and you divide it by six. So that's so there's a bunch of logistics here and do the math. And you can access anywhere in Alaska through uh, several flight charters. Um, like each hub has one or two, at least one or two options and call these guys up. They all basically charge the same hourly rate. So it's just a question of knowing where you want to go. And, and they know that too. They know where their strips are. And so they would probably do a lot of the, uh, could help you a lot with your planning there and say like, well, there's a strip here. I can drop you off. There's a strip here. I could leave food at and I could pick you up over here. But just to put some numbers on it, like that a commercial flight into a village from Fairbanks, let's say that's 250 or 300 US dollars one way. Um, to fly that same distance with a charter, you're looking at probably a thousand to fifteen hundred US dollars. So, one way that's that that really adds up. So you gotta gotta start saving now if you want to go somewhere remote in, in Alaska. <laughs> yeah, and, yeah. Unless you can right, unless you do it under your own power or you do it um, through one of those commercial. And then, last thing I really wanted to cover with you is the equipment. So, on two fronts. First Denali, uh, which if you're going guided, um, you know, they will, they will be able to give you a, a list of what you need to bring and a list of what they're going to give you. But then also, especially for someone like yourself, what kind of kit is going to be essential, not limited to, but essential for that more remote Alaskan adventuring? Well, this, this makes me think back to my, the first question you asked in my first answer, which is, which is really just this trial and error, like, <laughs> Um, you know, go out for that day hike and see how your shoes work and then do it as an overnight and make sure those shoes still work. Like get your, get your feet wet. I remember my, uh, my buddies or partners on that now I trip, uh, Evan Sargent, he, he said something like the best way to train for a trip like this is to fill your socks full of wet sand and then walk around in them, like what we're sitting in them at the office. 
like he was basically saying that your feet are the wheat link and you get you get blisters and so like get wet feet get dirty feet and then he said for denali specifically take a third sock and stuff it in your mouth so that you can't breathe very well like that was that was evan's brilliant brilliant training uh suggestion but it's it goes back to like try it and see what works and what doesn't work and for me i've got uh i kind of log you know i keep a record of what i bring on each trip like how much fuel do i bring um what kind of stove and i keep track of how much fuel we have left over or how much more i wish we'd had and and so through this trial and error i've, I've sort of built up this casual database of, of what i need on these trips and the only things that are, are really common is that I'm carrying uh, a light backpack as light as I can, like the pack itself. I mean, it, it just it's empty weight. And then a, sh a tent that is as light as possible given what we might encounter. And so that's going to be different for a Denali trip than it is for um, a, a summer backpacking trip. Like for Denali, I'll bring something that has more poles so that it's stable in the wind, um, but that's going to be heavier. So I don't, I, I don't have a, you know, the 10 item, like these are the 10 things you must have to climb Denali or to go to the Brooks range or to go backcrafting. The th things that are common between those are my repair kit, my medical kit. Um, I wear the same socks, I guess, on each of those trips. I have a couple of the same base layers, but beyond that, it's just like, you know, skis or snowshoes, uh, you know, a, a decked boat or an undecked boat. Like one of those is a lot colder than the other. And, and really, I think it, it pays to try those things out um, before you really put yourself out there somewhere remote, like pretty much anything you do in Alaska is going to be remote. So really, the, the best equipment list is trial and error and whatever works for you. And that is going to be your best equipment list. That I should have just said that. That is exactly what I yep, wanted to convey. And, it, and, you know, part of my part of my kit comes from, you know, Walmart, like one of these big box stores that sells you know cheaply produced stuff and made in china or whatever like that's where my rain jacket comes from or my liner gloves or whatever like rather than paying a lot for a name brand because i discovered that that name brand will just it'll get destroyed just like anything else in those conditions and so it's like well i could pay a lot for this thing that's disposable or i could pay less for you know so it's it's not about having the best gear according to the internet it's about having what works best for you and again i'm in this i am super fortunate to be able to have the time and the to live somewhere that i can go out every weekend and, and, and learn about my gear and learn about what my body needs not everybody has that luxury most people don't have that luxury and and then that's where the expertise from the guides really pays off like they know what stove is reliable and, and easy for for you to maintain or for them to repair and, and stuff like that. That's, that's huge. That's part of what you're paying them for. You know, those prices are kind of like the, the, there's a little sticker shock when you look at the price of working with a guide, but it's easy to overlook the fact that part of that price is the 10 or 20 years they've done determining how many calories per day you should eat and what fuel you need and how warm of a sleeping bag you need. Yeah, and that kind, of, that kind of comes full circle back to risk assessment, doesn't it? Which is just, if you are doing a guided route, so much of the risk assessment is taken out 
by someone, like you said, with 10, 20 years experience rather than, you know, your best efforts, <laughs> um, which, which could, could, could still be sufficient, but I don't know for, for me, I, I speak about it on the, on the first episode for me. And we had a chat about it as well. Then we are after, after we stopped recording for the interview, which is that, you know, my daughter's just turned five. So as I discover the world of adventure, you know, for that, at least the next 15 years, it's going to be traumatic for her emotional development to lose her father. So, you know, yeah. it, for me, it's worth paying, you know, the, the two times, five times, 10 times the amount extra for a guide in these situations, if I'm lacking in experience. So. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. There is no shame at all in, in paying an expert for expertise. I think, I just read an article about this the other day about how uh, it was about this like particle accelerator in you know, underground somewhere, probably in Switzerland. I think they've got one. Yeah. And it's like, CERN. he said, no, CERN. Yeah. Hmm. He's like, there is, there is no individual here who could tell you how this works, right? There's <laughs> no one person that knows everything about that system because it's so complicated. And if somebody did tell you they understood everything about that system, you kind of be like, uh, uh oh, <laughs> like this, this person's not trustworthy, right? Because how could you understand the geology and the physics and the payroll and the, you know, whatever. So it, it was an argument for acknowledging expertise and, and doing things collaboratively and, and saying, you know what, like I might be really good at researching podcasts and interviewing people. Uh, you might be really good at assessing risk at 17,000 feet. Like, let's let you do that. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> <Right>? <laughs> yeah. yeah. <laughs> Please. <laughs> Please do that for me. Please. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And at the same time, you you might have to honor your own instinct and and boundaries, you know, with that, with the person in that role. They might say, this is fine. This is safe. And you might not be convinced. And so you can either say, convince me, and a good guide will, they'll be like, here's what we got going on. I've got you backed up here. You're not, let's look at your knot. It's solid, your crampons, boom. You know, like we've done this, you got this, I got you. Mm. Yeah, absolutely, absolutely. Well, Luke, thank you so much for coming on and chatting uh, all things, uh, generally speaking, Alaska and Denali. So, uh, so yeah, I really appreciate the time time you put into this. Yeah, I, I love talking about Alaska and, and just anywhere trying to get outside. It's, it is so rewarding for, for so many of us i hope you enjoyed that chat with luke such an insightful one and he is a future guest so if you want to check out his interview then in three or four weeks time Luke's main interview will be coming out so give that a go as well he is such an inspirational guy news from our community as well I've been hearing from a lot of you that you're enjoying the show I've had people tell me that they're listening to it while they go for a run I've had people say they're listening to it in the shower so they must be very clean by the end of that episode but I think as we come out of lockdown especially the UK I'd love to hear some stories from you if you're whacking it on on your road trip going out to a hike or out for a paddle somewhere so do let me know uh, where you're listening to the podcast as long as it's PC. Great to hear from Jason Hardraff as well, who's just hit a fastest known time on Rainbow Mountain. He suggested a couple of guests too, and they are booked and coming up as well. So I hope you're enjoying them. Let me know who you'd like to hear on the podcast as well. 
But otherwise, I hope you have a fantastic day and I will see you in the next episode. Bye.